Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> the Thing. show itself it wants to hide inside an imitation it'll fight if it has to but it's vulnerable out in the open if it takes us over then it has no more enemies nobody left to kill it and then it's one you guys gonna listen to gary we can beat one of those things Tonight we are doing a special show. One of our supporters, Nick Grugin, bought us a new microphone when mine broke last month. So I asked Nick what he'd most like to hear us review. He gave us a bunch of options and we chose The Thing. Now Sharon and I probably wouldn't have reviewed this film for a very long time. We've got a long ass list and we tend to prioritize films we want to do at the top. We tend to cover movies we feel very passionately about one way or the other or big name blockbusters that we have a vested interest in the source material of, hence our super in-depth style and why we haven't reviewed Precious based on the novel Pushed by Sapphire yet. Surprisingly, we're not massive fans of John Carpenter, despite his films being requested quite frequently. So you Thing fans have Nick to thank for this episode's existence. Thanks, Nick. Thank you, Nick. <laughs> Check out the Patreon for a special level that now allows you to effectively retain our services as reviewers. This new sponsorship level allows a person to pay $150 and make one request for one movie for us to review. That $150 pays for the time it takes for us to watch it, plan out, record and edit a show on a two-hour movie. TV series will take longer, so for example the new Voltron, which a lot of you seem to want us to cover, we've seen it, it's pretty good, will cost more than $150 because it's 10 episodes and we'll of course have to look into the original Voltron for comparison. It doesn't have to be just one person either. You can club together on the forum and get a pot going. So really, that's your best bet if you want to see a show made and like us, you don't have a ton of cash to throw around. So you can do that through the Patreon or you can make a single contribution via PayPal on our website, schoolofmovies.com. But please do check with us beforehand because it may already be on our hallowed list and you shouldn't have to pay for it if that's the case. And you can phrase it like this. Is Naruto on your list? To which the answer will be, of course, no. That way you know it is time to have a whip round with all the other Naruto fans who also listen to School of Movies and negotiate a show with us. Same, of course, goes for Voltron. We don't expect anyone to take us up on this offer. It's just a possibility that we're giving to you guys. So back to The Thing, which we didn't originally want to cover. With us, however, are two gentlemen who would apparently talk about The Thing in a heartbeat. <laughs> Mr. Joshua Garrity of Kane and Rince. Hello there. Hello. And Mr. Neil Taylor of Gameburst. Cheating bitch. Hello. <laughs> Did you just pour whiskey into your computer? Because don't do that. No, I might have probably spit it back out. So if you haven't yet seen this film, and I don't often say this, but I really mean it now, go and see this film. Principally because it's what? It's 34 years old now, 
Um, it's re- wide release on DVD. It won't cost you much, and it is totally worth seeing when shrouded in mystery rather than knowing what's going on. Definitely see it, then definitely come back here. For the record, I picked up my Blu-ray copy, which comes with the one that we won't mention for about £7. We're actually totally going to mention the 2011 one. Well, I'm not going to because I haven't seen it yet. So. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. right. Well, um, Josh, have you seen it? In... Yeah, yeah, I've seen okay, it. Okay, right. Well, we're going to talk about it um, not in like super depth, but it's totally worth mentioning. It's relevant. Yeah, either way, the other thing is that the added benefit of our entire audience having seen the 1982 classic creature feature is that we don't have to synopsize and everyone is on the same page and we can go into depth. We don't have to describe what's going on everyone remembers what's going on <clears throat> so a couple yeah, of th- my rather uh, oblique tweets last night seem to prove that <laughs> so a couple of things worth talking about before we do the thing i, I don't suppose anyone's read the uh, john w campbell's uh, short story who goes there nope no nope. I, I went back and read the original synopsis it's remarkably similar to actually what happens in the thing uh, this is uh, this was um, written a long, long time ago. Hang on. Who Goes There was written in 1938. Yeah. Whoa. Um, and uh, it was made it's, – it's been adapted more times than we even knew. Um, oh, yeah. the, everyone's heard of well, – okay. Everyone's heard of The Thing. A lot of people have heard for, of The Thing from Another World, which is the uh, 1951 B-movie. Uh, and technically, The Thing, the 1982 one, is a remake of that. And then the 2011 The Thing – which should have been called something else, and I really don't like um, prequels or sequels which are called the same thing that sort of make them a remake, is more of a remake, although it's also a prequel. It's confusing. But um, uh, it should have been called The Thing Begins or The Thing Colon Origins. Oh, no, no, come on. Surely at that time it should have been The Thing Rises. I was going to say The Thing Rises. (laughs) And it would have been accurate because there is one point where The Thing Rises. But there's another one called the. It's simply called Horror Express from 1972, and that was on a train with yep. Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. It's a little cheap. It's fun if you can find it. I, I kind of want to see it now, just to complete the set. I also want to see the thing from another world, which uh, I, you know I was watching bits of that on YouTube because uh, I have not got <laughs> access to it. And um, if memory serves, am I about right when I say giant carrot? Yeah, um, it's not very good. Um, Is it not? The- Tell us about it. <laughs> Well, um, well. First of all, as Neil has alluded to, instead of this kind of shape shifting um, creature that can infest hosts, and you know the primary fear being paranoia and not trusting your friends and what have you, um, it's just a giant vegetable Frankenstein. So is um, the attack of the killer not tomatoes because tomatoes are fruits, but carrots? Yeah, effectively, and and also. You know, one of I think we're going to bring this up, but one of the you know problems with this film is that there's a total lack of women in the film. Mm-hmm. But the 1950s version has a female character in it. She's not treated very well, so um, in some ways, I kind of prefer the absence of a female character if like we're gonna get that in is the it 19- very much kind of <laughs> quiet down buddy this is man talk <laughs> pretty much is like go get us some coffee or you know like that that kind of treatment oh it's such not- a silly little thing yeah it's 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 not great well, but, the um, 2011 thing starring Mary Elizabeth Winston didn't exactly set the world on fire for for uh, equality either yeah. so it, it's not an instant fix but uh yeah I mean 
Um, well, actually, we'll talk about that, um, the introduction of females to this sort of story type when we talk about potential sequels, because I think to expand on this is both an, uh, a fascinating and it's dangerous ground in terms of the 82 version, but we'll come to or, that later. I suppose technically there is a sequel as well. What, what's the sequel? The video game. The thing oh. video game is technically a sequel. I completely forgot about that for my bullet points. What's what, what was that on PS2? PS2 and Xbox, yes. They were keen on doing sort of like going back to old ass movies on that in that uh, generation and going, and, let's and, do a sequel. And doing weird things like Reservoir Dogs and Scarface and stuff as well. And there was a Jaws game. Yes, yeah. I own it. Odd it's fun. game. <laughs> um, okay, so so what's the thing game like? Do you run around shooting things? Slightly broken, yes, but it does try to incorporate a elements of the film with sort of the paranoia and stuff. Is it actually uh, in canon, like, you know, takes place after the original event? <laughs> in it, to the game, yes. It's, it is literally, a, it takes place not long after the events of the first film. Uh, well, sorry, after John Carpenter's film. There's also some comics that take do sort of the similar thing. So there's a couple of iterations of, of doing a sequel to it, but the one that springs to my mind straight off the top of my head is, is the Thing video game. It had issues. It, it wasn't a great game, but it, it, it's there. It, it, it tried. Yeah, because mm. it, it, uh, I, I played a bit of it. I never completed it, but I remember it being quite ambitious for the time, but it's not aged particularly well. well I'm watching it now. It looks like Siphon Filter. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> was this on PlayStation 1? No, 2. 2, 2. I think no it was excuse quite, for this. quite early PS2 as well. Yeah. But. Oof. Okay. So, yeah, there's, there's that would... If, like, if, if you desperately want to see a vaguely... Um, faithful sequel that that's you know just watching all the cutscenes on youtube would be a way to go on that the bits that i saw of uh the thing from another world uh it it was more the sort of frankenstein's monster kind of stalking down the corridor you know coming to get you type um guy which was disconcerting especially when they set it on fire in in that scene when he runs out and puts stuff out in the snow which is paid homage to in in this film but all like the book then that film then the thing eighty two, and then the thing twenty eleven, all seem to sort of follow the same Arctic research base plot line. They're all retellings of the same story. Significantly, the thing from another world came out around about the same time as the day the Earth stood still, and kicked off the whole B movie movement of that era. That was a it was a huge deal, and specifically in both cases, both films were an allegory. Yeah. And where the thing actually succeeds most of all, probably, is is the fact that you can deconstruct it on in multiple levels. A lot of them not even intentional, but um, I, I kind of like that. You know, it's, it's also stuff we do on this show. A lot of the older good B movies are the ones that are allegor- allegorous, yeah. allegoric, allegorical, uh, like War of the Worlds. Mm. That's also absolutely fantastic, and it's probably my favourite version of all of them. It's sort of the B-movie 50s one. So those that try to work in, especially considering Paranoia plays a, a big part in quite a lot of them. Yeah, I mean, back, back when in 51, when The Thing from Another World came out, um, it was during the height of the Red Scare, and that was at the time of the McCarthy witch hunts. Uh, I'm not sure. I can't. Hang on. Let me just fact check that one. Also, when you said they're coming to get you, my head instantly went, they're coming, they're to, coming get to get, get you, Barbara. Barbara. <laughs> Thank you. At least I wasn't the only one. No, you weren't the only That's one. another one that came out around about that time as well. Actually, wasn't that like uh, very, very late 50s, early 60s? Hang on. Fact check again. 
Night of the Living Dead was 68. That's a lot later than I thought. Right. The House Committee of Un-American Activities. Uh, the um, Wow. It started in 44. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, well, it was post-war, wasn't it? Yeah. In October 47, that's when they started subpoenaing screenwriters and directors. So, obviously, this was affecting Hollywood directly. This was when they were getting Clark Gable up and, and going, right, are you red? And, uh, you know, accusing them of being communists. So um, that that would be the allegory for uh, um, The Thing from Another World. And The Thing in 82 was still during the Cold War. Yeah. Also, just back to what you were talking about, the, the, the sort of Red Scare stuff. I haven't seen it, but I heard very good things about it. Trumbo is mm-hmm. very good about that. One thing that occurred to me, um, that if you were going to make a, a, a Thing sequel, the, the War on Terror is uh it's been done so many times especially in superhero films but in in some way or another america does not do well when it thinks that some part of the world doesn't like it uh in during the communist era they didn't have to do much of anything for america to be terrified and to be jumping at red shadows all over the place iron giant perfect example of of, of this on film after 9-11 all they needed to do was ram two planes into two buildings and bring them down, and we are still suffering from the effects of that. The idea of not having to do much to to get us turning on each other and tearing each other apart, and that that's the power of the thing in these in all of these movies. It would appear just the the idea that we the fact that we can't hold it together is what kills us. It's a lot of the uh, the impetus in zombie movies as well. I think part of the essence of it, when you look at things like um, like the Red Scare and, and how the Cold War was able to, to, to stay as it was for so long, um, it's to do with the unknown. It's to do with this terror of what might be. Part of the issue with the, um, uh, with the McCarthy inquiries was that nobody knew what the right answer was. Nobody knew what the wrong answer was. And if you look at other allegories for that, that time period, like um, the Crucible, the, the big bad in that is the devil, which may or may not even exist. Um, and the hysteria and the, um, the hypochondria and the, the paranoia that goes with that is all about the fact that nobody really knows what the threat is. Nobody knows what the extent of it is. Mm. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's a, a huge part of, of what plays through horrors that use those, um, those themes. And like you say, the, the thing, the 82 version, <clears throat> being sort of still within the Cold War age, those threats were effectively still there. We still didn't know a lot in 82 about what was potentially going on behind the Iron Curtain and, um, you know, all the rest of it. And and the 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 terror that carried on, the things, things that people were afraid of throughout that following, you know, for at least another decade was the fact that they didn't know what might happen. And the fact yeah. that it never did might actually have made it worse. Maybe mm. if there had been something that had hit in like the late 60s or the early 70s or something like that, at least everybody could have sort of breathed a sigh of relief and gone, well, now we know what we're dealing with. Yeah. yeah. I, I think just bouncing off of your point, Sharon, um, something that's really fascinating is during this period of time um, around where the, uh, you know, the film uh, The Thing came out, 82, 
Um, there was a lot of remakes of, um, you know, old 1950s films. Um, like there was in the late 70s, um, The Body Snatchers. Uh, there was The Fly around that time as well. And, and what's really interesting is that, um, with the exception of The Fly, I don't know why I brought that up, actually. Maybe but, you, um, The Blob might have been a better choice. Yeah, but with um, Body Snatchers and The Thing especially, the 1950s films both end with a very optimistic take on that conflict. They mm. both end with, the threat is resolved, uh, we are triumphant, yay, happy ending. Whereas the 70s and early 80s version, you know, takes on those stories have either quite an ambiguous ending or an outright cynical we're going to lose ending. And I think that really speaks to the uh, fatigue of the Cold War that had kind of um, entrenched itself by the, you know, by the late 70s and 80s that at this point, like we were optimistic before but now we're just increasingly really pessimistic about the situation and we don't know what's going to happen and if you add to that the fact that the, the people who were who were doing these remakes they're the boomers that's the yeah. baby boomer generation that's the people who came into a world that was post war and the economic was uh, you know the economy was bouncing and everybody was incredibly optimistic about things and that's probably why those films had those optimistic outlooks yeah. So in addition to the fact that the Cold War had now stretched on for so long without any resolution, you've also got the fact that those were kids and now they're adults and they're having to deal with things like mortgage crashes um, and they've now got kids of their own that they can be scared for. So I don't think it's just a, um, a sociological thing. I think it's a generational thing as well, yeah. just in terms yeah. of the ages of the people who were, um, would you know, making those those films and it would be interesting to see what the tone of the remakes that we've had quite a lot of in the last decade or so and how that compares to the original and and how much shift there's been between now and the 70s 80s ones as to how much there was between those and the 50s ones most of the remakes we've had in recent years seem to be about nothing they seem to be about hey remember this bit in the original it's hey we can make money off the fan base yeah. Awesome. So we're, we're typified by nostalgia. Superb. No, the better remakes are, in fact, the films that were inspired by this era. So, for example, It Follows, a very 80s-style horror movie with just tons of possible allegory permutations. Yeah. We should do that sometime. Yes. Absolutely. The 80s are actually marked by quite a lot of nihilistic movies. Yeah. Some of my f- favourites are there, like stuff like Hardware and that, where it's just yeah, the future ain't good. You do love hardware. I gotta see this hardware every time we come on. Like every other time you mention it. <laughs> oh, you'll probably end up hating it because it's just one I love. But you know, what's that for you for? You know, I don't. You know, I don't hate films you love out of spite. Oh, right? I, I know, but it's just that kind of thing. You know, someone goes on and on about something, therefore you watch and you just go, huh? Really? Yeah. <laughs> Release dates are very important, folks. It's very important to remember. Um, If you were going to the cinema to see The Rescuers Down Under on November 16th in 1990, you probably would be uh, walking past posters of Home Alone while you were doing so, released on the same goddamn day, and then wondering why there was no one in the cinema with you. Um, You know, the, the fact that it was released on the same day as Home Alone killed The Rescuers Down Under. It squashed those mice. Um... Uh, Jurassic Park 
came out in uh, in 1993 uh, uh, on the 11th of June, and on the 18th, Last Action Hero came out, and nobody was in attendance. <laughs> and I like that film. I like that film, um, but but you know nothing can contend with those Raptors, man. <laughs> no, no, you you are onto a loser. Okay, yeah. I, be, I don't know if you've got it there. What what tried to open near T two? Because I remember that being phenomenal. Oh, let me let me have a look. Hold on. Because that'll be just uh, one or two years before. So, uh, was T2 91 or 92? I think 92. Okay, hold on. Uh, no, it was 91. Ooh. Okay, so T2 came out at the same time as Terminators of Endearment? No. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, now I want to see that. <laughs> I do too. Actually, no, no. You know what? Uh, let, wow. Um, on the 3rd of July, T2 came out. And on the 12th of July, Point Break came out. How did that film do any money at all? Wow. But it did. I mean, that, that, they're both classics uh, in, in, in the action milieu. Um, <laughs> on the 19th, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey came out. Bloody hell. <laughs> uh, but on the actual same day as T2, Problem Child 2. That's why you never hear people talking about that. Yep. It's also because the film's not as good. Um, but here's the thing. What... <laughs> Uh, everybody take a shot whenever anyone in this says The Thing. <clears throat> what came out two weeks before The Thing? E.T. The Extraterrestrial. A sweet, good-natured alien. And everyone went to see it and went, oh, that's lovely. And then this horrible alien turned up after two weeks and said, ah, I'm going to take it and assimilate all of you. And everyone went, no, thank you. We'll go and see E.T. again. And then if the, even if they weren't, they were still divided because Blade Runner came out on the same day. Oh, to be God. fair, Blade Runner was not a success in the. It pitch. was not a success. That was a that was a dismal day at the cinema. I mean, like, like the cinemas were empty, and it's like, oh, all Although we've got that, is Blade Runner and the Thing play. That, that sounds like <laughs> that sounds like my dream trip to the cinema. Do I pick yeah. the Thing or do I pick Blade Runner? Albeit the fact that I would have been not quite two years old at the time. <laughs> I still, I'm sure, would have had a whale of a time. And, uh, yeah, I could probably have caught E.T. as well that same day. But, uh, yeah, these folks spoiled for choice. What came out? It was Ghostbusters and Gremlins came out on the same day as well. Ooh. And they managed to somehow survive despite each other. You know, there's people... That's another double bill, you know, if you, if you want to, like, go and see two films that are going to become seminal 80s classics on the same day. That was a good year for film. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. So that was 84 was uh, was Ghostbusters and uh, uh, Gremlins. 82 was E.T., The Thing, and Blade Runner. Uh, but uh, one thing I've been planning to do for a long time, um, and this is completely off the point, I hadn't planned to mention this, but is go through movies by year from 77 onwards, because, frankly, that's when movies started getting good. <laughs> just, you can start your witch burning now if you want. And, and just go through and just list all the films that are of worth and quality from 77 through to now. Actually, I made it 75 to now because Jaws. And I, I guarantee that there's going to be about the same number of films released per year. Like maybe a fluctuation of three or four up or down. But there's, there's not going to be any year where it's like nothing came out in 1988. I'm only partway through this list so far, but uh, it was hard to find a full 10 in the 70s. And then the 80s got a lot better. And the 90s was pretty good as well. 99 was incredible. 2000 was rubbish. And as we yeah. discovered, there's going to be moments where you go, this came out this month, this, this, and this. You're like, bloody, what? We were spoiled, but yeah. 
Um, so yeah, that's an ongoing project I'm going to be doing, and I'm th- I might even turn that into a podcast. As in, like you know, let's just examine this decade. Did anyone? Does anyone remember the X Files episode Ice? Vaguely. It was the it was Mulder and Scully, and they were stuck in a sort of an Arctic research station, and there were these sort of slugs that burrowed under your skin, and then sort of controlled your mind, and everyone was paranoid of each other. Kind of thing inspired, uh, wouldn't you say? So actually, you know, when I was watching this, and there's the the shot where McCready and the two other guys fight, see what they've unearthed, mm-hmm. and alien spaceship under the ice, and I went, oh yeah, didn't the X Files movie do that too? It did. There was a spaceship under the ice. Oh, hey, Neil, do you like spaceships under the ice? <laughs> Uh-oh, where's this leading? The Thing 2011 has got quite a bit of spaceships under the ice, Well, action. given that it's some sort of weird prequel, I should imagine it does. I, we'll talk about that in just a second, but actually, let's talk about it now. Yeah. You know, um, yeah sell it to me, because I saw this, I assume, remake, because of the way they were going, and then all of a sudden it seemed to switch to being prequel. I'm- I'm not going to sell it to you. <laughs> um, Look, I put it here. It, it. Came, it came with the with the carpenter thing. Give me a reason to put it in the Blu-ray player. Okay, it's not it's not the worst thing ever. It's just kind of boring, if that oh. makes sense. Um, mm. And whereas the monster in the '82 film feels like it has a modicum of intelligence, like it waits for its moment to assimilate people and tries to operate in the shadows. This creature will just suddenly go, ah, I'm a monster, and then just do dumb monster stuff for like <laughs> uh, half an hour. It, it, it suffers the xenomorph problem. As the films go on, the, the things get dumber and dumber. Well, the, the, That's the, something I was going to mention. Yeah, but carry on, Josh. I mean, at least with the xenomorph, they kind of established that it's animalistic whereas with this creature it has technology it's building a spaceship it has the ability to just blend in and communicate with other human beings as if it's normal it's chameleon yeah and for the 2011 movie to just go well the only bit people really care about is the bit where it explodes into a gory monster is a massive misunderstanding of the core of the movie. Those set-piece moments in the 82 movie are fantastic, but it's not like that's not the philosophical core of the 82 thing. The, the core of that movie is fearing your best friend, fe- fearing the one you thought you knew and trusted. Yeah, and it's it's a series of slow, creeping dread moments that start to ratchet up the tension till it's a breaking point. Then it breaks, yeah. but it can only ratchet up that tension if you're invested in the, the actual um, the, the, the paranoia that's sort of surrounding them. If you don't give a fuck what's going on, tension can't take hold. It's like you're covered in oil. Yeah. And, and and ultimately, the CG CG effects are just never going to be as memorable as the practical effects. Mm. Um, just everything looks like everything. Yeah, yeah. And and there are several scenes where, I mean, Alex, you coined the phrase millennial rubber. There are loads <laughs> yeah. of millennial rubber moments in the 2011 yeah. thing. It often happens when light doesn't fall properly on the... Uh, the sorry, doesn't fall correctly according to the surroundings on a, a creature especially if it's moving if it's moving in and out of light and shadow there's i mean if, if it's an actual mechanical thing you you've got the blessing of it being in the room and the actors reacting to it yeah and 
really watching all these CGI effects, there's no actual reason other than safety why they went CG at all. There were a couple of moments where it suddenly going all CG was quite effective, but I couldn't not think of Resident Evil 2. For, you know, it's like the whole thing with teeth in its chest. Mm. You know? I, I lo- the sad to say these days, a lot of the reasons why you have CG instead of practical is it's cheaper. It is cheaper. It is cheaper. And also the other thing is that it, um, the practical effects are becoming a lost art. There's, um, you know, th- th- there's less people studying it, less people making money from it. The only people keeping going with it are folks who are left over from the previous days or folks who adhere to these disciplines like crazy because they believe in it and they love monsters there, that much. There was a series, I can't remember who it is, but it's, it was hosted by Scott Ian of Anthrax where he went and mm-hmm. visited guys who you know, did that practical effects and you just see the models now and they're like decades old and they've been well looked after. And you just look at it and go, they're actually a work of art almost. They're yeah. that beautiful. And then iconic and they're made with, you know, it could be the most, it could be a Cenobite from Hellraiser, but it was made with love. Yeah. And it, it sounds <laughs> daft, but it shows so much love went but, into that nail faced guy. I mean, at the end, I think at the end of the day though, I am only so cruel to the CGI effects in this film because the rest of the film is so dull and unengaging. Mm. If if it had the soul of the 82 film mm. and you know the the really economical uh, screenplay where it just mm. gets straight to the point and doesn't waste time, I might have been able to forgive the moments where it looks a bit fake. But because everything else is so unengaging, the only thing I'm left with is to go, well, that looks stupid and that looks dumb. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I I think a CGI thing can work if you actually put the time and effort into it. But this that that whole production feels like a rush job. Do you ever see the uh, 2006 film The Host? Yes, I, it's I, a, the Korean film, not the 2013 yes. Stephanie Meyer written yes. one. Yeah, that, that's an excellent example of a film with CG creature in it that that's works. really gripping, and that you Under- just <laughs> you're, you're never going to pick on the CG because you're totally engaged in everything. And by the end of the film, you're thoroughly depressed. Yeah, it's uh, it's, it's grim. It's and, good. Uh, it's really yeah. really good though. But yeah, no, totally recommended, folks. The host, uh, but but for God's sake, don't just go into. I was going to say blockbusters, not bloody likely. Don't just randomly click on the host. Yeah, that's fine. Don't get the 2013 one completely different from the writer of Twilight. Not that should so put big. you off enough. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we've we've gone on about the difference between CGI and uh, um, uh, uh, practical many times before. But um, The Thing 2011 effectively is a prequel that, since everyone's now seen the 82 version that I'm speaking to, <clears throat> it is what happened in the Norwegian base before McCready and Co. got there. And the director, despite the fact that the end result is kind of drab and seems to miss the point of the thing, clearly loves that film, even if he doesn't quite get it. Mm-hmm. Because um, they went back and like, like performed an autopsy on the original sets and, and everything that, that we are shown about there. And they do detective work to work out why the fire axe is embedded in the wall. What drove that man to have, have both his wrists and throat cut. Um, 
Although, by the way, that that couldn't happen. The the whole like the streams of blood that are frozen. It wasn't that cold when he cut his wrists. But it makes it have had to be fucking immediately deep frozen. Yeah, it's it's a it's a fantastic visual. It's kind of the story of of how there was that big sort of ice trough and what was in that ice and uh, you know how they got it out of the ice and all of that stuff. And so it's it's vaguely intriguing, diverting, but at the same time, in the same way as a good example would be Prometheus. That's like exactly we, what I was thinking. We of. didn't need to know that much mm-hmm. that watching a, a boring version of it was worth delivering. And yeah. apparently, the cutscenes made it better. Oh, really? Yeah, they they was it a couple months back they showed you know the guy that gets changed and then comes back to the ship and attacks and kills like load of people in the the sort of vehicle bay. Oh, it's you mean a, Prometheus? Uh, yes, Fifield. Yeah, yeah Fifield. Uh, he was meant to look more alien-like, oh, or xenomorph-like in it. And when you watch, you go, "Okay, that makes more sense." Gotcha. Uh, see, now Ridley Scott's done a turnabout, and he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, my next film. Uh, I've, I've put Neil Blomkamp's Aliens sequel on hold, Damn and I'm you. now making Alien... Oh, you don't like being Neil Blomkamp, do you? I, I, no, I like Neil Blomkamp. I, it's, I, I'd rather see his take than Ridley's, because you know what? You did yours. Let yeah, that, no, that's what it. I mean. His, his now, new one, Alien Covenant, it's, it's, it's now alien. It's like, like everyone, you know, th- this Prometheus is totally its own thing and it's not about alien at all. And everyone came to see Alien and then got disappointed when there wasn't an alien. Then they showed the alien anyway. And now he's going full on alien and it's like a total alien prequel and apparently will contain the mother of Ellen Ripley. Yeah, that's the new thing that broke and I just... What? Face why? Paul. What? You've always been here, Ellen Ripley. It's like, no, no, no. It's no, your no, destiny. This is why... Look, you, you, had, you did a really good one. You did Prometheus. Let someone else have a try. Because it worked sometimes. No. <laughs> These are my movies. Um, so sometimes yeah, it, I get that the, feeling with Ridley. The Thing 2011. It, it's, it's a passable way to, to, to watch for two hours. I don't necessarily recommend it. If you are burning with curiosity, go for it. But consider when you have seen it that you can just erase it with mind rubbers and go, not canon, yeah. if you want. It's, it's, it doesn't do anything that's, that's like, no, that's wrong. There are several moments which, uh, like the, one of the parts of this film is that the thing can't assimilate things like fillings and it it can't incorporate dead material into its body. Okay, that makes sense. Completely ignoring the fact that hair is is effectively dead material. Skin (laughs) cells are dead. Just your, your epidermis isn't alive. The other thing is that McCready in this works out the whole blood test thing through observation. Mm, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who, by the way, beat Kurt Russell in Death Proof and thus won at Conkers and becomes him in this film. (laughs) Um, Even though she wasn't actually there at the end of Death Proof, her buddies beat him either way. Um, Mary Elizabeth Winstead finds some fillings and then jumps from A to Z in terms of working out what's what's going on. Uh, So basically I'm not in it for a pleasant surprise like I was with Robocop, more of a... Is it done yet? Yeah. Robocop's kind of an, oh, okay. Yeah, that was pretty good. Whereas the thing was like sort of, yeah, okay, could have been worse. Yeah. You know, like um, the, the, the new Nightmare on Elm Street, for example, where, you know, I was watching it the whole way through and going, oh, this, this could be, you know, okay, well, I suppose they've made him more sort of threatening and not making jokes. And then at the end, they combine rape with jokes. And <laughs> nope, 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 nope. nope. <laughs> Cheers. Thanks. That reminds me, at some point, we really are going to have to watch the remake of Point Break, aren't we? No, we're not. (laughs) God, no, don't make me. (laughs) Okay, you know what, folks? That remake of Point Break is going to be one of those $150 jobbies. (laughs) 
<laughs> you are going to have to Besides, make this. We already did wild. the good remake. It was called Fast and Furious. <laughs> yeah, we did. Mm. Now we have to do the pre-make of the Fast and the Furious, which is called Point Break. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I'd do that just to hear, Hi, I'm an FBI agent. agent. Brian! There's a Drew Strutzen poster for this film. I love collecting Drew Strutz and posters for our uh, our artwork. Um, he uh, he basically had like a, a weekend or even just a night to get this thing together. He knew nothing about it apart from that there's an alien creature and everyone's wearing parkas. So he put on a parka, photographed himself, and then basically drew shining lights coming out of the uh, inside of the parka so face. Basically, in an hour, he created one of the most iconic posters without yes, bloody- because he's a genius. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, ladies and gentlemen, Drew Strutzen. That's and, what he does. <laughs> and if you watch The Mist, Thomas Jane in The Mist, who is effectively playing Drew Strutzen somehow, while he's drawing the Dark Tower poster, in the background there is the Thing poster as well. So that's a little Frank Darabont little nod there. Um, but yeah, that's it's, it's a, a fantastic poster. I'll say it before we go into the main body of the film. I don't think this needs a remake or a sequel or anything. I think it actually works best just standing alone undisturbed. I think what kind of buggered the alien was that they didn't just let it drop after aliens. Yeah. If they'd just made those two films and just left them, those are two perfect different genre films that explore the alien as much as it needs to be explored. Yeah. One of the best aspects of the thing is that we don't know much about it at all. In fact, they in in the thing 2011, they kind of like misinterpreted it and started explaining it in in a, in a wrong kind of way. There is a danger if they made another sequel, even from someone who likes the thing. I, I just watched a, a bunch of uh, YouTube videos from um, Rob Ager. Uh, who uh, you know really loves the thing and was uh, was talking about it in super depth about you know whether Charles might be infected at the end or not and um, you know he was he, he laid down his uh, plan for a uh, a full sequel taking place in a government bunker so that you still got the, it's closed in and there's paranoia and the idea becomes you know they can't get to the surface um, wasn't that the concept of the Resident Evil movie. Sort of, yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, the, but the, uh, the the whole point is that this bunker is linked to the the government, and so the thing could become could infect those in higher government. And Rob Ager seems to really understand that this is uh, you know ripe for allegory and the whole idea of paranoia that the government themselves are not working with the people's best interests at heart could become a really fascinating idea. And he was talking about the whole notion of you know sexuality hasn't been explored with the thing. You know how about you know a, a, an alien woman seductress who then turns halfway through and <laughs> fucking assimilates hello species thank you thank you <laughs> but um yeah and he had a whole load of ideas and sort of laying down you know that the 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 life cycle of the thing and you know what it does and the time it takes this is actually stuff we don't need to know and in fact it's better if we don't know yeah because the more you study this creature the more you normalize it the less powerful it is. Which is exactly what I was saying about the whole fear of the unknown thing. If you know yeah. it, if you know its life cycle, you can interrupt that life cycle. If you know its vulnerabilities, you or, sorry, the other way around, if you know its strengths, you can work out what its vulnerabilities are. You, there's things that you can do to stop it. It is no longer the source of terror that it was when you started. And if you want to continue with the allegory, if you get to know communists, you'll find that they're just like you. Yeah. Indeed. So, or, or the simple version, sometimes they should only be one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, as we found out with Highlander coming soon. 
sense. But yeah, in in this case, I think the thing has enough strength and actually holds up on its own as a 34-year-old film and then some. If you, you know, you watch this in 10 years' time, 20 years' time, it will still hold up in, in many regards. There are things you can do with a sequel that will diminish this. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I love so much about this film is um, how ambiguous the ending is yeah. and how the film kind of subtly implies... Um, the apocalyptic nature yeah. of the, of the creature without ever showing it, and I, I've always been afraid of um, sequels to this film because they just show the apocalypse. Like what you know, they'd effectively do uh, War of the uh, World War Z or something like that, yeah, except yeah. with thin creatures. And to me, the the idea of it in your mind, PG thirteen thing, yeah. Okay. Just the the concept, like when you see that number come up on screen, like seventy five percent of the population will be assimilated in no time at all. Oh, I, I will interject there, uh, Josh. That was the point where Sharon and I both went. That's not how computers work. <laughs> Absolutely, how is computer crunching these numbers. It is. Absolutely garbage science on the, on the side of the computer. Too many variables, but let's just pretend that but it does know and that's accurate. Carry see, on. Josh. Seeing that information, you are immediately put in the position of Bradley Whitford's character where he's like, oh, okay, um, we all have to die now then. Okay, I'm going to destroy all the radio equipment and all of the, uh, all of the huskies because um, our lives are not worth this creature getting out into the wider population. Did you say uh, Bradley Whitford, as in Josh from the West Wing? Yeah, I think that's oh, yeah. <laughs> Whoops. Um, who, Do you mean Wilford Brimley? Wilford Brimley. You know when he's Why? like, it doesn't want to be dogs. It wants to be ass. God damn it. God damn it. I did, why did I say Bradley Whitford? <laughs> that would be an interesting version of the film. It would have been about seven. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, just... Uh, yeah, that's what's great about the film, is the implied concepts. The, the, there is a greater world outside of this Antarctic bunker, and that's playing on the minds of the characters, and it's playing on our minds that this creature could be devastating and thank god it's only you know it's landed in the you know the least populated continent on the planet yeah. uh correction uh he was born in 59 bradley whitford he could have been 23 when they did the thing totally old enough to be one of the uh, guys in this um but yeah no that's that's the thing there there is a, a prevailing idea that to to dissipate and soften the fan outrage that remakes don't take away our you know the, our beloved originals you know that they, they can remake robocop and it doesn't make the original robocop any less um the other side to that is yes it does because whenever you say alice in wonderland you have to then specify um the disney original or, or not the disney one the book um and whenever you say the thing you have to say the 1982 one on the other hand the thing itself the 1982 one is a remake so it proves yeah. that remakes can be done well it, it can and that the 1982 thing doesn't take away from the thing from another world however the thing from another world is not a fantastical perfect movie 
remaking it made an excellent movie, um, which even though I didn't massively like it all that much up until recently, just doing this, actually, I've grown an appreciation for it. So thank you, Nick. There's a, there's a merit to that. Make, remaking something which pretty much really works yeah. is dumb. Is is when it well, it's not dumb. It's it's financially minded, and that's that's all yeah. it really is. Yeah, yeah, it's not dumb. It is. It is absolutely before that. The reason that they do remakes is you've it automatically got an inbuilt audience. Mm. Yeah, think- so you're remaking something for artistic vision, and that's different. But that so rarely happens. Who has the power to do that? Well, I think the the essence of it is if you're looking at something, if you're looking at a film that that means something, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to just you know a piece of celluloid trash that everybody seemed to like the first time out, so you're going to wheel it out again so that you can make some more money off it. If you've got something that has a a, a very specific theme, and you're going to remake it, you've got a couple of choices. You can either look at whether that theme is still relevant. Um, and, and whether the old version of the film still works in that context. So say, for example, if they decided to do a remake of the thing where it was all about um, finding out how the creature worked and its desire for survival and, and the, the ways in which it's like us, that, you could argue, is then an update on a very old-fashioned idea about communism and the fact that when you look at it, is it actually all that different from us mm. and in actual fact the way that the thing works is more like capitalism i think because it just takes over and consumes stuff oh my god are you saying that hollywood um, remakes <laughs> take something original and then just make this garbage fucking body version of it and then then shit out an extra head for no reason just like mm. the thing <laughs> <laughs> i might be saying that but no but my my point being that if you if you then update things in in terms of how we're looking at theme of that like um Thanks. if you say a film from the 80s that was uh, the the underlying point of it was about uh, the the life sentence that AIDS was back then. If you remake that these days, you've either got to make it about something that's not AIDS, or you've got to incorporate the fact that that's no longer the case. That there's now you know medications, and it, it's, it's a very different um, situation than it was back then. So you either do that, in which case technically it's not a horror anymore, but you could still make a really interesting and engaging sci-fi out of it. Or you've got to abandon the theme and um, try and find something that's that's more relevant to the current time if you want to keep the original tone. So back then, the paranoia and the the, uh, not knowing who your friends were and all that kind of thing, that was the fear. You need to take, if you're going to keep the the essence of the story the same, you need to work on the theme and find a way to incorporate that into what people are terrified of now. And I think that's the thing that they... Thing. We can't use the word the thing. It's so <laughs> yeah. That is the element that they really fell down on. There was nothing new in that at all. They were literally replicating story beats without thinking about what that meant now. Just, just bouncing off of your point, uh, Sharon, um, I agree with everything you said. And I think for me, when it comes to remakes, it's not so much the films that are outright remakes that are successful, but kind of spiritual remakes Mm. that are really good. Because I was going to bring up It Follows, actually, as Mm. a film that really is philosophically similar to this film. Mm. Considerably less gory, but 
the the actual tension and fear comes from the same place yeah. and if if we're talking about a modern reinterpretation of this story it's it follows i th- yeah. i think that that film is what a modern take on the thing would be yeah. and and you know just broadly speaking about remakes that's that's kind of when they work is when they understand the core of the story and then just do something different the yeah. fly is a great remake of the 1950s one because it has the core of the story uh, that's exactly the same, but it's with 1970s, early 80s sensibilities. Mm. Um, you know, same with It Follows, and same with so many, and, you know, uh, the same could be uh, said to the, you know, The Force Awakens. It's a modern reinterpretation of um, A New Hope, and, 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 yeah, you've got to think of it that way, rather than just being a carbon copy or trying to replicate the visuals of something or to continue yeah. with the mythology sometimes in the case of the, the thing for example the mythology works perfectly when contained much like they were trying to contain the thing we don't want to know about it yeah exactly. um rob Ager, the the sequel ideas he was having he was talking about that actually sounds like a great film and he should totally do that he should totally write and then direct that film just not have like make it a spiritual successor to the thing but not exactly. an in-world like expansion of the thing i think you know there's no copyright on shape-shifting aliens if yeah. there was then red dwarf would have been sued to buggery for this one <laughs> it almost was by patrick stewart <laughs> really yeah patrick stewart was going to sue red dwarf yeah well he's not- such a lovely guy why would he sue he was them? originally he watched it mm-hmm. and at first thought it was sort of a rip-off of star trek mm-hmm then realised it was quite funny and ended up being rather a large fan of it. It's more like Hitchhikers, really. It is much. But anyway, back to some of the points. Yeah. Making. Sorry, I, I, you know, I, I you're going off on a good tangent. I, I didn't like this one. <laughs> I didn't want to interrupt, but you, you brought up the points of you mentioned the fly and you mentioned the Force Awakens specifically. There, I think you also have to take into account the sheer talent of the creative. Uh, well, I'll say oh, team behind it because you have you obviously have Cronenberg. Mm-hmm. He's, yeah, yeah. He's absolutely fantastic and a skilled filmmaker in his own right. Just some really great body horror. And then you've got someone like Ab- Abrams, who's again just fantastic work. And I think when you put the right, it, it's like all films almost. It's you, it's a right combination of team and creativity yeah. working where they can flourish. You know, when you think about it, there must have been a lot of pressure on sort of the Star Wars team to make that film Absolutely. and the the idea to to sort of interfere but they realized they put it in such safe hands with abrams that they didn't whereas when you put say something like um the thing into that i don't even know who directed the 2011 film i'm guessing it's somebody we've probably not heard of hang on um the thing released in 2011 uh matthias von hagenigan <laughs> let me just say that one again god bless you <clears throat> Mathis von Heidenigen. Gesundheit. Gesundheit. Let me try that a third time. Mathis von Heidenigen. Oh, come on. Rolls off the tongue. <laughs> he loves the thing, clearly. I mean, I, yeah. I, I do recommend you see it, Neil, as a big fan. Just, oh, just no, I'll watch it, but I'm just looking sort of what he's done and, well, the thing is it. Yeah. Yeah. So you're putting it into... I, somebody who like he clearly had oh, vision so that may have impressed some people in a room somewhere you put it my, in on, 
Movie Bob actually brought up a, a really good point in his um, Warcraft review recently, mm-hmm. where he said there is a danger of being too in love with the source material. Yes, and I think that is where a lot of remakes fall down because The Force Awakens, as much as it's you know using um, uh, a New Hope as uh, kind of a framework for mm-hmm. the plot, as I, did Star Trek before it, by the yeah, way. It's an Abrams film, though. He's not. He he wasn't afraid to put his stamp on it. And the same with the you know Cronenberg's The Fly. That is very much a Cronenberg movie using a plot from a 1950s film. Mm. Whereas uh, Warcraft, um, I haven't seen it, but my understanding is it's very much just a straight up retelling of the lore before the first game, yeah. which sounds very boring and the thing is very much the thing 2011 is very much just let's thing try begins. and yeah let's try and just recapture all of those moments that people said they liked about the first one and yeah. then not have anything that kind of identifies it as unique uh, or well the thing of like, the, it, at the end they go like to, to the spaceship to deal with it at the source which is what they tend to do in crappy hollywood movies yeah um, like it's it, you know they, they saw that it worked in aliens and then never they, let it go they never let yeah that's the thing it, it works beautifully in some films but then if you just sort of half-heartedly like slap it in there without that being like it works brilliantly in aliens because that plays in with Ripley as the mother going to recover her child from the other dark mother. That is, I mean, it's just, just so much going on at that point. Yeah. Um, but in this, it's just, well, let's go back to the spaceship because we haven't done that yet. And then the thing chases them there and then they blow it up with the thing. Just, you know, spoiler warning, Neil, they blow up the thing. Mm. And it, 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 felt, it felt... But no, of course they don't, yeah. It it felt more than anything else to me like the Tommyknockers. And if anybody has seen the TV mm. version of the Tommyknockers, they will know how bad it is. I mean, I love oh Jimmy Smith, but dear God, even he couldn't save that thing. Yeah, no, he tried. Bless him. Mm. He tried. He did, mm. yes. But then at the the very end, it does sort of go boom, boom, boom. And it starts with the opening music for The Thing, which brings us, by the way, to the opening of The Thing. We've talked about it for 55 minutes. We haven't actually talked about the film yet. But uh, it, it ends with sort of like a bunch of Norwegians seeing the dog running off across the tundra and going, what, get in the helicopter. We've got to go and shoot that thing. And they get into the same helicopter and fly off. So it does border very neatly into the real thing. It's going to be like the real Ghostbusters. They're going to put the big ring on the top. The real thing just makes me think of Coke. I'm I'm glad we did all this talking about remakes before we tackled Ghostbusters. Mm. Can't think why. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I want it to be good. I want that, it to be good. Yeah, of I course. really do. This might date. So, <laughs> but yeah, no, you were right about that trailer with um, uh, Chris Hemsworth being a ditz, being you know way better than the previous two. That looks. I don't know why I enjoy Chris Hemsworth being a ditz, but I find it hilarious. Okay, so the opening shot of the thing in 1982 seems to be the exact same opening shot as Predator. Yeah. I don't know. It could be just the Stan Winston link, the fact that, you know, this this was the 80s and they were all sort of book cribbing from each other, but it, it feels like there's a sort of a family going on with aliens and Predator and Thing and Robocop and Terminator, just all of these things. Like, you could pretty much connect Stan Winston to most of them. Yeah, that's because he's a freaking genius. He is. But uh, he's... 
I watched him on the making of. He is such a love. Well, he was, and I suppose he is because people like that who are beloved forever never die. Um, such a lovely, humble man. He, he he came on and he was talking about the actual uh, special effects supervisor for uh, the the eighty two thing. Oh wow, the music was by Ennio Morricone. Did you know that, Sharon? Because it really feels like um, your, your standard uh, John Carpenter score. He tends to jump, take to the keyboards himself for those. I, I wouldn't have thought Ennio Morricone, and I and I like Ennio Morricone. Yeah, but he was very humble about the fact that he only contributed part of the uh, special effects uh, in this. It's, it's not a, a Stan uh, Winston joint the whole way through, and uh, but it, it definitely has his fingerprints on there. And uh, you know, if you go into the uh, the extras, there's a lot of stuff on the actual um, how they they put the effects together and and how the original pieces, grotesque though they are, are kind of works of art. They're kind of beautiful in a terrible, awful way, in the, in the way that Giga stuff is beautiful mm. in in a terrible way. It's a, it's a nice shotgun penis. Something from hell, um, but at the same time, just the original pieces before you start adding all the the flesh and the blood and the viscera and the dripping and the stuff. I think my comment was uh, it was when they brought the body back from the Norwegian camp. Was like, why would you bring that back? And later on, I think my tweet was, it's like Cronenberg and Carpenter had a bizarre love child in yeah. some of these special effects. With two, oh, you get the origin of Two Headed Man in uh, in the Thing 2011. So look forward to that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Um, just to scoop back a little bit to when what we were saying about the, the thing and the alien and the predator, it occurred to me that there's something that those beasties all have in common, as well as obviously being aliens, mm-hmm. um, but very specifically and in direct contrast with things like E.T., they are aliens who we can't, we can't comprehend how they think because the way they look at us is completely objectifying us they see us as resources and nothing more yeah. we entirely serve their purposes and I think part of the, the um, of how that works so well as scary sci-fi or horror if you take it to its um, to its extreme is that that's the kind of you know when we talk about how why is it are all these shows filled with psychopaths and psychopaths are, and are really difficult to get behind as characters because you can't there's no way to connect with them. But they this fascinate how, people because they're so removed. They do. But if that's what you want to do, this to me seems like the way to do it. Make them entirely alien. Make them look strange. Make them eight feet tall with black cockroach headpieces yeah. and um, you know weird twisty limbs that shoot across the room and grab you and things like that because that that disconnect is if if you want to explore the sheer i can't get my head around how this creature thinks that visual seems to me to be a stronger way of doing it than just going well it's mads mickelson isn't it and or something you don't know yes <laughs> uh, one thing that occurred to me actually while i was watching all of the the, the thing um, crawl, like using its tongue to crawl across the floor and it's going like that and, and then like, the, the bit where the doctor's trying to use the um, trying to use the defibrillators and then the the thing for it is he eats his hands and then immediately turns into a head with tentacles that leaps to the ceiling and goes and everyone I can't understand why it was doing that. Was it trying to terrify them into like deer in headlights? 
it, yeah, good. To, but that's the thing. It's what it's projecting is so difficult to comprehend. Like at the end, when um, uh, the Wilford Brimley thing turns up in front of Macready and just this giant sort of <coughs> thing at the very end, what's it doing there? When like a dog comes out of its stomach for for what particular reason? The fact that it doesn't seem to act like we would understand. Say if a if a lion was attacking Macready, mm. the lion would behave in a way that we would understand a lion to behave, an animal to behave. There are points of connection between mammals, points of connection between predatory mammals. We can understand that. We can sort of relate on some capacity, in some capacity. The thing itself behaves in such a weird, deceptive, often baffling way. Like, it's, it's so overly theatrical without us. It never speaks that's one of the best things about it. It never starts to communicate. This is another thing that Rob Ager suggested it could do for this sequel. I was like, no, don't let it speak. Because then as soon as it speaks, it's, it's normalized. See Independence it, Day for that. It's got motives. It's mu- I was Yeah, there was a point in, this, in the thing 2011 where someone was talking about peace. And it was, I just muttered, peace. No peace. peace. But the fact that it doesn't speak, that it just doesn't have those points of connection for us, keeps it in this uncanny valley. Like... Like really, like it's it's got that it's like a person but not thing yeah. going on, which is constantly unnerving. What what we're all talking about here is Lovecraft. Like yeah. this yeah. this this film is explicitly very Lovecraftian in the yeah. way that it's constructed. This creature is not evil. It's not malevolent. You know, it's not. It hasn't got a a grand master motive that it's going to take over the world. It simply exists and is doing what it perceives to be its natural, you know, state, its natural instinct. And it's, and its instinct and its nature is so alien and so incomprehensible to us that it's terrifying and that's what Cthulhu um you know is all about it's what um the color out of space is all about it's that's what you know Lovecraft's fiction was all about it wasn't the malevolence it wasn't the evil of the things that we cannot see or the things that are out of space or under the sea or what have you it's the fact that they're so big they're so big and so beyond what we're capable of comprehending that we are just an an ant in a lot of ways we're just nothing not even an ant in some cases we're just a grain of sand to them and another thing uh, you know you were talking about the nature of the creature if you if your biology worked the way this creature does how would you comprehend death it wouldn't be the way a human comprehends death would it Mm, mm. and so the callousness with with which this creature just you know kills people and its willingness to use itself as a distraction so that other pieces of itself can escape Mm. or to fool mccready into thinking it's one which is what i think the ending's all about it's fooling mccready into thinking ha you you've defeated me yeah yeah okay go have a drink with charles now uh there's nothing we'll get on to that because i think (laughs) i am the only one of the few people has a different opinion of that ending oh yeah We'll get to that when we get to the end. I've got a bullet point. I've got two. I've got that one. But, you know, I I said on Twitter that this film is kind of, you know, amongst like like top 10 favorite films of all time because Mm. it's so effective at that, just that one aspect of just the the, the creature that we like with 
with the alien with the predator as as alien as those creatures are they they do have a motive that's mm. at least understandable the alien <laughs> yeah they're is, weekend hunters yeah Bunch of dicks. Predators are right-wing republic. You know, they're Republicans <laughs> who go to Africa. They'd be posing, <laughs> smiling over over dead soldiers and going, "Hey, thumbs up." And and the alien, um, that sorry, the xenomorph is an ant. Uh, is a a an insect creature, which is absolutely disturbing and horrific at, at the size of a human being. Yeah. But you can see documentary footage of creatures who behave exactly the way that creature does. Yeah. Whereas this one is just so bizarre and yeah. and it just what it conjures in your imagination is it's so horrific i i it's yeah. more scary that it comes from a technologically advanced spaceship as well it's yeah. it's never really established in either film whether that was actually piloting the spaceship i think it's implied but it's not for definite and one of the the, the best things that um carpenter did regarding this film is just to shut his fucking mouth it's just to not fill in all those gaps for people yeah is just to let people speculate on it. I, I often wonder whether I should just have never really spoken about New Century and allow people to sort of piece these things together themselves and sort of keep the air of mystery. But there's just so much that I want to hear spoken about. I've had to jump in and go, right, well, this means this, this means that, and this is how I'm developing this person. Well, the, the, here's, a, here's a sort of comparison for you, Scott. Scott Cawthorn, the creator mm. of the Five Nights at Freddy's, is very, very actually quiet about the law. Oh, yeah. his law he's that's in there, which has created a cult of people speculating yeah. what it's about. That's one of the reasons. It's a I, smart man. I don't actually even play the games. I buy them to give him money because you know what? You because of the game, I have been entertained for hours by other people's speculations and reading <laughs> the theories and stuff. It's like <laughs> fine, but when you think about it, it's sometimes it's better to leave many things unsaid and. Just let people make yeah. up their own minds. Well, I would just, definitely say in regards to horror and alien terror and the supernatural and stuff, and maybe don't say midi-chlorians was the cause. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, avoid that one. Or I, they I, came from planet Zeist. Indeed. Ooh, I, I, <laughs> I knew I'd get it in there somewhere. Uh, I have a theory, actually. And oh, Neil, occurs- you're going to love our Highlander 2 episode. You will love it. I'm sorry, Sharon just said I have a theory. The same thing happened again. <laughs> Could be bunnies? <laughs> it's just an automatic reflex. It is. It is now. Um, yeah, uh, Josh, you talking about um, about Cthulhu and the idea that these uh, that there are these things that we cannot comprehend because they're just too big, and their uh, their way of dealing with the universe is such that we, you know, they don't even see us. Um, we're, we're too small. We're just resources, or we're not there at all for them. Um, I, you could interpret this the other way, actually, that it's too small to grasp what we are. One of the things that um, that sort of uh, made me think about this as a concept is the idea when they're talking about the blood and every cell being a, a, almost like a creature in its own right. And so if you threaten any part of it, it will try to defend itself. What if, and I, and I said to you, Alex, it's basically the way it behaves. It's like a parasite. It's like yeah. something that cannot survive unless it's inside or consuming something else. Mm. So what if that's it? What if it is just these tiny little particle creatures? What if the thing is not a thing, but billions of things all stuck together, all replicating, all trying to mm. um, 
to well not even having a concept of what it's trying to do just literally each cell copying the cell that's next to it and hence why you end up with these dogs that can only manage to sustain looking like dogs for so long mm, yeah. um, and then the cells over replicate and then it just basically bursts because it can't contain what, what's happening anymore what if that spaceship belonged to a different species entirely and it was taking it back as a prisoner see? or well no not even you do a space jockeys no 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 space jockeys or even it's <laughs> cold well, yeah what if this thing was just a sneeze on somebody's dashboard yeah. That just happened to get out and replicate because when it arrived in our environment, it just happened to be that there was gas in the air or nourishment in the ground that Keep it didn't Ridley have. Keep Ridley Scott away from this franchise. In its, <laughs> we in don't its want to know about black goo. Well, indeed. But, but oh, that's no, what the I mean. headache of that show. That's what I mean, though. It's it's all of that is completely. Um, speculative there's nothing that really says that this is this is the definite thing but when you start trying to crystallize it by remaking it and saying well actually here's what it is and there's where it came from and this is what it was driving you take all that away and it's a loss it is a loss when you look at at things that are um, that are dealing with scale I won't say like large scale necessarily because like I said it could be like quantum scale but things that are just not in our frame of reference, if you try to solidify them and you try to, to coagulate them, you you take away that uh, yeah. the horror of the unknown and the horror of the speculative. It's like witnessing God's toilet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, no. God's I just <laughs> I, knowledge contracts. That's, I mean, that that's kind of the rule of the horror movies. Is mm. the more you know, the smaller everything becomes. Mm. The yeah. the more you leave up to interpretation, the bigger it becomes. Mm. That's that's the same with. I mean, um, sorry, I'm going to bring up Dark Souls, which is going to annoy everyone no, on the it's internet. <laughs> but um, the, I wondered how long it takes you there. <laughs> but um, one real. of I see one of Miyazaki's philosophies is that like is that kind of um, uh, idea of knowledge contract, uh, contracting space because every Dark Souls player who's managed to get through it twice will tell you the first time you go through it, it takes 60 hours, the second time you play it, it takes 20 because you know the space so well and the threat is diminished entirely yeah. whereas the first time you go through it, every corner is terrifying and that's the same with horror films like that would also account for why dark souls 2 and 3 have been increasingly less appreciated and seemingly easier every time because you're just getting better at it yeah i i am now i am now pi may going into <laughs> dark souls 3 i'm not i'm not um yeah beatrix kiddo arriving at the steps nice. um yeah and um that i mean that, basically that's what i'm saying with horror films the less you know is a good you know it's a good thing to know so little because mm. then we get to have these conversations where we go is it a disease is it intelligent we don't know isn't that scary that we don't know yeah. that it's mm. might just be space flu and, and that's what's going to wipe <laughs> out we caught it race? and we had no immunity whatsoever so we're screwed <laughs> the, the, the how many things are you going to be off a couple <laughs> <laughs> the dumb thing is there you just reminded me I think I can't remember if it's Tremors one or two, where the things are trashing like the vehicles and the radios. And the reason the things are so smart in trashing the vehicles and the radios is because they're so dumb because all they see is via heat. Mm. Yeah. Right. yeah. So, did they ever explain the Tremors too much in the sequels? 
Oh god, yes, they add in other iterations. It gets oh. really stupid. Flying Trevors? Yes. Oh god, I was joking. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'll tell you the name, sir, because you guessed correctly. God. Ass Blasters. Ass Blasters? Ass Blasters. I wish I didn't. No. Oh, <laughs> yeah, just oh, not like this. There not are like this. there are certain instances actually where, it, and it, this has to be incredibly well crafted, a horror where the point is that you find out what it is. It's no longer scary, or or rather, it's not that it's no longer scary. It's not that it's not frightening anymore. But you know how to handle it. Mm. Um, and but that's it's hard to do. I have seen it done a handful of times. It's excellent when it's done well. I can't actually cite the multitude of ones I can think of that apply to this, because if you folks haven't seen any of them, it will diminish the horror going in and through. So The Thing, 1982. It starts with the whiteness and desolation of the soul, just the the, the Arctic represents, which in itself is terrifying, because it's just this this vast desert-like landscape. And you know they're just being down there unprotected for a few minutes and you're dead. And um, you, I think the natural inclination is to side with the dog because it's a handsome husky wolf ha- crossbreed. Yeah. Huskies give me the creeps. Well, possibly because of the thing. <laughs> no, because they're eyes. They have the weird bluey eye. Ooh, creepy. I see what you mean. Yeah. Um, huskies themselves aren't the smartest of dogs, but this one with uh, wolves are smart. So this one was a, a, a this one was a smart dog that was well trained. Um, but I think you're supposed to be like, oh, don't shoot the dog to the to the creepy Norwegian guys. So so then when things start happening. There were a couple of moments of, well, what did you do that for? One of the guys, when bullets start firing off, he immediately smashes the window. <laughs> He's like, I smashed the window like I'm in a Western, a Peckinpah Western. Doesn't shoot anybody, but does let in the freezing cold to this secure and sealed facility. Good going there. Yeah, the one thing I don't get is, this is meant to be a research station. Mm-hmm. These guys don't strike me as scientists. They strike me more as... The, the, oil rig workers or yeah which reminded me of alien to which this makes, film makes owes sense. a debt yeah uh, they weren't going to make this film they were they were passing around various script versions of it toby hooper had a pass at it and then toby hooper went off and directed poltergeist which also came out in 1982 but either way the reason that the studio eventually went yes go with it on the thing was the success of alien and the thing has that same level of these guys don't really want to be doing this job much. They don't like each other all that much. And they're just kind of trying to push through. They're not going to give it their all, which makes it seem oddly real. You know, everyone's been in that workplace where it's like the office where everyone's just sort of like just pushing through, just trying to get through the day. There's no go-getter there going, come on, team. Oh, me at work then. Because they'd be murdered. <laughs> That grounds the film straight away. And I get why they, they, they wanted to not complicate things by not including women. Um, but ultimately, Alien did that extremely well. Yeah. And there is, a, there is obviously the, the psychosexual side of Alien as well. Uh, but the fact that it's an all-male cast isn't necessarily an absolute strength. It could, it could as you say, uh, have uh, included some women. Although that didn't necessarily save the 2011 one. I was going to say, this film doesn't need a female character. Mm. But... Well, that's my my feelings towards it. <laughs> I th- I think that the the problem is is when the film was made is that if you included a, I mean, Alien proves me wrong, but 
there would have been a temptation to have included a romance subplot of some Oof. kind, mm, which true. absolutely would have been a bad idea. Yeah. I think these days, now that we've embraced the idea that platonic relationships do in fact exist between men and women... We're just um, old. <laughs> yeah. Um, that... that I don't think that's really an excuse anymore, and I don't. I'm I'm not excusing the film for this lack of, um, you know, uh, gender diversity. I just I would rather. I think my position on it is, I'd rather have no women than women done badly, which is the yeah. case of the 1950s film. Yeah. Or specifically, let's include women, and women get it the worst, which yeah, is a lot, exactly. a lot of horror. Just about any film. Yeah. Horror is. The worst offender for it. Yeah, uh, Sharon always says, tends to like cabin fever. There are like two oh. girls and two guys in cabin fever. The guys die horribly. The women die really super horribly. horribly. The yeah. Saw series was also very guilty of that yeah. as well. Yeah. Interesting, Eli Roth, you sick little puppy, you <laughs> horrible, horrible man with well, no talent well, well, whatsoever. Well, and I will well, say that because yes, I watched your films. <laughs> What I will say on this subject... Um, oh, by the way, um, uh, just a side note, folks who've listened to Arlington, Eli Roach, a little nod to uh, Eli Roth there, just a guy who makes your skin crawl. Uh, still too nice. What I will say in regard to uh, the idea of, of that particular topic, I don't think the argument of... And I know, I know it wasn't an argument that you were particularly making, Neil, but I don't think the argument of it doesn't need a female character is really all that relevant because ultimately it doesn't... Nothing, nothing needs female characters the same way as nothing needs specifically male characters. It's, it's fair, just a case of the... the, uh, the <laughs> actually, uh, in 1982, if it was an all-female cast, there would be a large contingent of the audience going, what are all these women doing in the Arctic pretending to be scientists? That's exactly what I was going to say. I think, to be <laughs> honest with you, look at it less in terms of of why aren't there any women in this cast and look at it in terms of would there be women working in a very remote Arctic science uh, scientific station there might have been but in the early 80s the amount of work that they would have had to do and, and what they would have had to push through to be able to get that role in the first place it would have been nigh on impossible not to make that part of the story so from that perspective i would say it actually kind of makes sense that there aren't any women there yeah. you've also got the lord of the flies element that when yeah. you take men out of a context of where there are 50% women around them, their psychology changes. They do things differently. Yeah. Um, and they interact with it, with each other in a, a different way than how they would act in normal, normal, inverted commas, society where there are actually women and children around them. And this is the thing that frustrates me the Thanks. most about the uh, the relentless militarization of uh, the the bulk of the themes of video games that's not normal society you're selling that as the norm that is portrayed as the standard and it's not um but anyway that's a whole other argument sharon before we go on could you tie your woman's hair back please because it's rustling on the microphone Sorry, as it does I, every week know, when you don't tie it back i don't have a clip to hand i've been holding it up most of the time but i forgot when they do the updated updated inverted commas version where you've now got the idea that Mary Elizabeth Winstead is is an outside woman she gets brought in and that, that, I mean it's not as if it's a, a point of the plot apart from the fact that she gets talked down to by the um, the older guy 
um, which I just I wanted to slap him by the second half. Um, but I, I kind of got the impression that what they were going for there was more the fact that she was younger um, than the fact that she was female. But when you've got an older man and a younger woman and he supposedly brought her because she's an expert in, I don't know, ice cutting or whatever it is. Um, the movie wasn't entirely clear or maybe I just wasn't paying attention properly. Um, but that dynamic, it it becomes a, a, an issue that she's the expert. But supposedly, and yet he's ignoring her. And and yeah. again, that shifts themes. It changes dynamics. It changes perspectives. It makes the film about something that it wasn't about before. Um, and I think, and I know what you meant about it doesn't need a female character, Neil. And I, I wasn't, I, you know, I know. I was only gently I, I, ribbing you about it. Oh no, I know. It's, it's awkward to try and get that point across without yeah. sounding. No, no, no. I, I know what you mean. Yeah. But the but the plot threads and the dynamics and the themes that would have been brought in if that had been the case were not what they seem to be trying to go for, yes. and that's absolutely fine. I, I, this is there are. Films that I get very annoyed when they l- deliberately leave women out of it. There are a lot of films where they have one or two women and they get treated like shit. And it winds the hell out of me. But this, honestly, it didn't bother me. I, I didn't think it was um, it was something that necessarily needed to be, to be pulled apart in terms of the 82 version. I think, yes, they probably should have addressed it a bit better than they did for the, um, the update. Because, um, as I say, you've, you've got one woman who's basically brought in from the outside. You've got another woman who is is very much background, hardly does anything. And me and Alex were sat there like, she's going to... The way she dies is going to be so horrendously horrible. It doesn't and it was. Thinking about. Totally it right. It was, yeah. Really, really As I said, they're usually, if they're there, they're cannon fodder kind of thing. Yeah. They, they all they had... needed to do was explain that because it's an isolated situation, it's, it's, it's uh, like submarines kind of thing. You know what I'm saying? The regulations say. It's not even cannon fodder, though. It's Cannon fodder is where someone gets blasted out of shot. Like the guy who has his um, uh, hands ripped off goes, ah, and his hands go, uh, like, you know, he's bleeding, and then he just drops out of camera, and then just we, we don't think about him again. Um, the, 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 the guy who was actually on the table, uh, technically, if we're going to call that a death, dies in about the messiest, most horrible way in the whole like is transformed and like turns into a giant spider thing and his head comes off and then like there's another head in there. And then then the head turns into a crab. And there are moments, by the way, where this is hilarious, where they can't help but be hilarious. They weren't trying to be, but the the, the bit where Kurt Russell's looking one way and then just behind him in the the shot, the the crab head thing's going, and then Kurt turns around and goes, what the fuck? And then the crab goes, uh, Nobody here but us chickens. And then it, <laughs> yeah. kill him with a flamethrower. And then that, that, that's hilarious. You have to know that's hilarious. Although yeah. you say they weren't trying to be funny. I have seen interviews with practical effect people. And by and large, they have got the sickest, weirdest sense of humor going. Yeah, that, that's, <laughs> yeah. um, it's funny, but also it works because all of a sudden it's, a, it's, it's tension, shock, relief of comedy of the weird head crab, especially when yeah. the, because they knew what they were doing when the, the eye stalks pop out. Cause if you don't laugh at that part, <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's not just shock though. It's, it's sickening violence. Shock is a, a monster closet moment where the thing surprises you. Like there's a point where, when he, um, uh, when that he's doing the blood test and it's ratcheting the tension, tension, tension. And you're like, you know, then like 
and when you're at breaking point, he gets all casual and just sort of presses it half-heartedly whilst he's mid-conversation, and it goes, blah! That's the shock. Then what follows is the thing, and then biting a guy's head with its head. Yeah. And then picking the guy up and flailing him around. It's like, oh, my God, just, just stop. And it's so violent and so horrible and so sustained that you're kind of like – you're fascinated, but you you want it to stop. It's like it's like watching a snake eat a piglet. Yeah, it's like you're feeling really sorry for the poor piglet, but, but you can't st- look away. But I can't look away. <laughs> That's the scary thing. This uses violence as it often really is, which is fascinating and yeah. ripping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the other reason why it's uh, it's very male dominated. It feels like a western. Like it's a it's a, a lonely town, and then a stranger's walk, uh, you know, ridden into town. And uh, Kurt Russell's kind, of, well, almost certainly channeling John Wayne. And it's not the first or last time he's ever done that either. Um, yeah, we we watched <laughs> we watched a bunch of Kurt Russell films recently. Um, uh, Neil, we saw Big Trouble in Little China, Love it. Uh, which we quite like. Um, we saw especially the bit where the guy explodes at the end. Yes, that, it's so funny. Lyra loves that the best of all. Um, She's quite gruey, actually. She does like horrible gore and explosions of people. She finds them fun because she gets that they're effects. That's, yeah. that's how it got me. That's why I'm the way I am. Sorry. Uh, we, also, <laughs> we also saw um, uh, Hateful Eight, which is so that's, horrible that we're not going to be including it in our Tarantino film. I was about to say you're talking about Westerns, and I was going to try and work Hateful Eight in. But yeah. Um, Death Proof, which is so horrible we're not going to be doing it in our Tarantino horrible. film. Horrible. It's boring yeah it's boring but also has moments of being truly horrible oh yeah no that is also true so yeah basically don't get tarantino and kurt russell together that that would appear to be a bad combination yeah. uh, but we also saw and i've never seen it before escape from la oh my god it's so hilariously over the top oh, stupid oh. i don't get how that's a sequel to escape from new that's york which was great. grim and gritty and dark yeah. and then you got bruce campbell in makeup I was like, is that Bruce Campbell? And then suddenly he was gone. Uh, what is the point of Valerie Galino in that film? She's just there, and then she's sort of the love interest, and then she just gets killed. Yep. Pointless film. So, it's, yeah, it's Kurt so Russell's bad. been it's up good. and down in our, in our yeah. view in the past few weeks. It's kind of like his career, really. Yeah, but, um, but anyway, so it, it's, like, he's very much the, the, the sheriff who's on to things before everyone else is. And there's a very telling moment at the beginning when he's playing chess with his computer and his chess his computer beats him. And even though he's got bugger all else to do in this uh, station, he he can't just leave having let it won. He, he pours the whiskey into it, thus shorting it out and buggering his computer, um, which kind of is reflective of how he behaves at the end of the film. But um, I'm going to go back to uh, uh, Rob Ager and his many, many theories about this film. The, the idea is that MacReady is actually extremely smart. And as soon as he works out that the thing exists and sort of what it's doing, the whole of the rest of the film becomes a giant chess game between MacReady and the thing. Now, that may be entirely inferred, but I kind of like the idea that he's smarter even than he seems. Oh, I have a different theory. What's your theory? Because this relates to the whole ending bit. And I haven't got that much more to add to this. Okay, so the popular one is that uh, Childs is the thing at the end of the film. Because mm-hmm. he's not breathing steam, uh, but uh, MacReady clearly Oh, he's drinking, yeah. yeah. Oh, I think it's MacReady. Oh, yeah? I think it's MacReady from early on in the film. Oh, but, yeah? Because one of the things they were on about is to how the thing wants to free, uh, go back into the ice and freeze so he can be found again. Right. What's MacReady's plan? He wipes out the base so they all freeze. 
Yeah, he burns. Well, I think McCready's plan's supposed to be that he just burns everything. Yeah. yeah. But and hopefully that... he might be able to burn it up whilst doing so. Because yeah. after the actual blood test, there's a lot of chaos and fire and running around and screaming and shouting. But there's, there's very little sort of deliberating. The whole thing is it points a lot of... You know, they find McCready's jacket torn and stuff. And it's just like, oh, no, it's fucking with us. It's fucking with us. But the way it goes, you've got to remember that McCready at the start of the film was portrayed as not being that smart and all of a sudden through the course of the film all right as you said quite logically through logical observation he gets he seems to be much smart i do think at the end of the film macready is actually the good thing I, I i like that it wasn't confirmed i i like that it wasn't confirmed but i i disagree mainly because i do think the film portrays macready as smart but not mm-hmm. in not in the way that we usually think of it, yeah. because he's a la- he's a lateral thinker. The way he defeated the chess machine was by just pouring whiskey on it. That's yeah. that's a win in his eyes. Oh, he gives Child some whiskey as well. Yeah, that, that that's the point I was going to raise. Is that apparently he's got a flamethrower underneath his jacket that he's hiding? Yeah, I I feel like. That... Oh, one more thing. Sorry, Josh. God. Why so many flamethrowers in this Arctic facility? Because uh, well, yeah. they actually use them to defrost things. Oh yeah. I don't think they're actually flamethrowers, but they do. Well, they d- yeah. would use some sort Def- of defrost this turkey. Get the flamethrower. <laughs> but if you think yeah. about it, you're, you're in that environment, one of the most, the most inhospitable atmosphere on earth. You know, you need something along those lines. Um, sorry, Josh, continue. It, it, you, uh, what I was going to say was, well, I shouldn't say that in front of the sentence. I should just carry on, Josh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> The beginning of the film, where McCready is having that chess game and he pours the whiskey in it, I my belief is, and I believe this is a, a theory reflected by much of the community, mm-hmm. is that that's foreshadowing the end, where he passes the whiskey to Charles. And the moment Charles drinks, without hesitation, without a worry that the saliva will affect him, yeah. McCready has a little smirk on his face. Like, He's like, I ah, gotcha. I gotcha. And... That for me is yeah, McCready's winning stroke of yeah. I oh, yeah, I, no, know, I, yeah. I know I, I I'm one of the fringe ones. So I think it's more fun if it is McCready than it is Giles. I was out to be more obvious. And and I think that it's fantastic that the film doesn't confirm that either way, and yeah. that we can have these kind of conversations. Yeah, yeah. That it can more be... ambiguous endings to films, please. Yeah, that that bit at the end of Dark Knight Rises so much better if Bruce hadn't totally been there. Yeah. Exactly. Thought it was better if the whole film hadn't been there. <laughs> true, true. By the way, true. The Dark Knight didn't necessarily need a sequel. Indeed. Um, and and this kind of links into what is absolutely my favourite thing about this film is mm-hmm. how much of a puzzle the film is, and yeah. why I love rewatching it. Um, just figuring out, okay, at what point did this character get infected? Um, where, how did the, you know, how did the keys get out of, um, get out, and how did the thing get access to the blood and, and all of that? And and if coming up with your own head cannon is the the popular phrase, isn't it? <laughs> Having your 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 own interpretation of you know the events without the film ever. Uh, confirming or denying it, I, I love that that um, confidence on the part of the filmmakers to just let us 
piece together and enjoy rewatching it and and trust that you know maybe we don't get it the first time but the film is compelling enough that we'll watch it again and try and figure it out next time i i love i love that style of filmmaking where a lot of it is just visual and audio cues rather than dialogue going, well, the keys were here and blah, 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 blah. No, come on. Yeah. Respect me. Respect me as a viewer. Respect, Respect that, my intelligence. <laughs> Respect yeah. that I am actually absorbing the information that you are showing me on the screen. And I, yeah. and I love that. I love Trust in your story as well, that it has it shows enough elements without telling you about those elements that people can piece this together. Yeah. One of the things that makes me disproportionately angry is when I hear stories about how they had a film laid out in a certain way and then they showed it to a test audience <sighs> and it seemed like the test audience didn't quite get this. So we went back and we put something else in that made it a bit more obvious. And I just want to find that test audience and just just slap them, slap them all. It's Whoa. a great way of aiming only for the middle. Yeah. Yeah. Doing that. Mm. Yeah. And also, members of that test audience might go away like two hours later and go, oh, wait. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. Yeah. The, the trouble is, right, a lot of the time a test audience is grabbed at random. That's not how films work. People yeah. will see and go, I'm a fan of this. I'm going to yeah. go see it because I am a fan of this. Or that looks interesting. I'm going to go see it. People at random, you are going to get people that don't necessarily have any interest in the subject matter that's being portrayed. So therefore, you're going to get an odd sort of disconnect yeah right um oh what's his name jeffrey katzenberg katzenberg katzenberg, katzenberg. Right. from disney he he had a thing with with about test audiences and and making all sorts of changes to, to disney movies because of the way that test audiences responded and one of the things that made me want to throttle him was um he i can't even remember what the film was but basically he was watching it with a, a test audience of children which is fine it's a disney movie that's your target audience but there were some some little boys sitting near him who were climbing all over the seats. And he interpreted this as, oh, they're bored. The film isn't capturing their attention. We need to put in some more things that will keep little boys' attention. Jeffrey, they're four, five-year-old boys. Their attention span is about five minutes. You're not going to sustain it with a film. Climbing no. over the seats is what they do. They're not even going to be seeing it in the cinema, God willing. They will be seeing it on DVD when their parents very sensibly get it out for them later. Do you feel bad for saying that? Yes. <laughs> she said it's the second time she said it because we said it on the Disney shows. I know, but... I'm just not sure if we released... No, we haven't got to the Katzenberg phase yet in our... Uh, but to be fair, I, I agree with to repeat that. on that. Yeah. I, oh, well, the other thing is that, stupid. that Katzenberg then headed up DreamWorks, you know, responsible for films like Madagascar, which is a lot of... Beep, blah, 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 films, which if you actually put them on for kids, little kids... The kids will run around the living room going, they won't sit in rapt attention like they would with, say, The Lion King. For the record, I did try that. Michael watched, I watched more of the film than he did. Boy, though, Madagascar films got crap really quickly. Yeah. Well, how old is Mikey now? He is 16 months. Ghibli. Yeah, Kiki's Delivery Service. That was the first one that Lyra really, really liked. I don't know whether he'd like a delivery witch. I'm so going to get in trouble now when I say this. Do you know what he does like? Uh Uh-oh. I'm going to get shot. The thing. No. 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 
God, God, no. Oh, don't mind on me much better. He quite likes Five Nights at Freddy's videos. Oh, he I, finds I, it, whoa! He finds it funny. Okay. To, to, to oh, he's going to be one of those horror kids, isn't he? Who, like, who sees... <laughs> he's going to be my son, you mean? Yes. I was going to say, <laughs> look at him, daddy. What are you now, uh, these effects were done by Greg Nicotero, no, son. Okay. <laughs> Better. It was it was purely bags and he watched it. He was fine. He wasn't bothered. I thought, you know what? I'm going to turn this off now because I'm thinking that you probably shouldn't watch this. He protested at the fact I made the funny monsters that jump at the screen go away. Oh, oh. You, I think he's going to be a good kid. Like <laughs> I think they're going to have a lot to talk about. Cool. Okay. Um, tell his mum, by the way, I will be shot. <laughs> God, yeah. No, no. We'll keep this stum. Right. Um, so yeah. Now, just, just just to go back to to just some core things about the thing itself. As if you check out the, uh, I just sent you guys a, an image of uh, my notes, and I put puzzle to be worked out. Totally, completely on the level there, Josh. Yeah. Um, it's th- this this whole film works so much better that at the end they don't go and it was all this. Old man Jenkins. All the puzzle pieces have been delivered to you, but the whole puzzle has not been pieced together. It's up to you. Mm. I love that. That's great. <gasps> like oh. the thing itself. It's uh, all bits of a puzzle. It can't assemble them properly. Maybe it has no form. Um, also, the uh, just a couple of little extra things. The Dawn of the Dead style creeping electronic music, that brr, brr, brr type stuff. That's why I thought it was... Um, uh, uh, Carpenter himself, because he does that a lot in his movies. But for some reason, that music says it's going to be the end of the world. Yeah. Why is that? Carpenter's very good at that kind of score. There's a guy, what's his, I can never pronounce the, the guy's name right, Perturbator or something like that. Very much in that style, but slightly more dancey, and it works brilliantly. Isn't Carpenter actually touring as an artist now as well? As in, like, doing concertos? Well, doing the music, performing the music. Uh, for a Carpenter fan, that must be hog heaven to sit sit there and watch the man work. Yeah, I'd uh, that, gladly do that. Gavin from the Gymquisition recently saw Hans Zimmer. Oh, to see Hans Zimmer in concert. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah, but Alex, won't we be tempted to shout, blah, at him every so often? <laughs> we might, but I think he's allowed to do the bra he is the progenitor of the bra hmm. he is the original bois <laughs> um, I, I think it's got the the sense of the um the end of the world about the music is the feeling of inevitability mm. there's a pulse to it there's mm. a, a strong steady heartbeat that basically you know this tick follows top follows tick follows top if it stops something's gone horribly wrong mm. And also mm-hmm. because it is electronica and it's done in a certain way, it feels cold yeah. and motionless. It's definitely of its time, though. So if you were playing oh, yeah. type of music now, it would be evoking this time very deliberately. Um, the the dog acting is is really good in this film. When when the the dog is being the thing, and it's the, the husky wolf, and it's like looking out the window, you're like that dog's working stuff out. You know, I, I'm a th- I'm a thorough maintainer that the thing is actually very smart and observing the humans all the time, and um, it may not have encountered uh, creatures exactly like us before, but it's encountered things like us, and it's going right. Well, I'm going to be doing this then. I'm going to be working these buttons, and I'm going to be working these angles. Um, but when it starts transforming in the dog pen, and it just seems to, to go like like it's doing a pretty good job of being a dog, and then the rest of the dogs are like, 
Hang on a fucking second. <laughs> yeah, they, goes, uh, oh, bollocks to it. <laughs> to be fair, the dogs yeah. work it out much quicker than the humans. Yeah. Uh, also, props to those dogs. They really are shit scared. Yes. They're, yeah. they're throwing a horrible creature right in their midst, and those dogs are like, what is going on here? This is not fair. This is not fun. And then that poor one gets goo. It, cu- it gets covered in alien jizz. <laughs> And yeah, it's just and we don't mean the music. A truly grotesque scene, and you know, y- your heart's reaching out to the dog, but at the same time, your stomach's turning at the actual the, the mm. amount of tentacles and stuff. And it's it's kind of fascinating because like it's been so low key up until that point. It's been yeah. like no, nothing, 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 and then just in the shadows, blah, 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 blah. it's like it's like nothing, nothing. Oh, sorry, lads, John Carpenter couldn't make it today. David Cronenberg's just going to step in for yeah. this shot. Because it just goes full Cronenberg. Also, got to say, fantastic use of sound. Without that, it it wouldn't have that creeping sensation. And but again, relating to the fact that it's creeping and the the hidden aspects, it's pretty much hiding in plain sight, which is even scarier on on a certain level than the xenomorph. Because if Mm. the xenomorph's around, unless it's hiding in like tubing where it looks exactly like a xenomorph, in which case you'd be sort of a bit more alert to it anyway. the fact that it it could be there as anyone makes it really scary, and it's just about like there's li- like little betraying like eye movements and things that make you go, "Hang on, that person seems a little bit shifty." But when Bennings runs out into the snow and collapses onto his knees, and then they run out after him and they surround him, that's probably the creepiest moment for me. That's why they they went to that image on the the front of the uh, the 2011 the thing. I think that may have affected other people because it's like it's it's him in the parker. He's not quite fully transformed and his hands down it's all claw like but it's when he stares at them and goes that that's that kind of like it's it's not trying to communicate i don't even know what the fuck that is Mm. but it's creepy as hell well it's you've got the uncanny valley essence there because he's he's almost replicated perfectly yeah but then you look at the hands or he almost looks like he's trying to open his mouth and talk to you. And then the noise comes out and yeah. it's just so inhuman. Although it's, that may also be a tribute to body snatchers that oh, mm, at the end. Yeah. Indeed. But that that essence of uh, it's almost there, but not quite, which is so undeniably flesh crawling in a way that the xenomorph, which is alien right off the bat and doesn't even try to pretend to be anything that's going to convince you it's human, mm. you can never possess. It's a different kind yeah. of, of terror um, with that kind of beastie. But um, Again, though, if it had just been alien, I think it might still possess that terror because it's still that kind of unknown, like, industrial, organic thing. But then there's yeah. too much light is shed upon them in aliens. The life cycle is explored properly as opposed to, like, like the original alien is still kind of a puzzle. And then they shed a lot more light on it in Aliens and then in Alien 3. By Alien Resurrection, the aliens are the fucking heroes in a comedy where you're yep. hating the humans. Yep. Yeah. Alien DNA. Uh, I, I also think it just uh, with Aliens, it, it's the transition of movie types as well. We go from the haunted house horror yeah. film of the first one to the war film of the second one yeah. to the weird prison drama of the third one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the 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 it's a psychological thriller. The third yeah. one because it's it's a descent into to Ripley's depression and and the fact that she's got nothing left. Um, I still think Alien Three gets a really bad rap. Oh, I've watched it again recently. You know what? I think it does as well. I I find it thoroughly enjoyable. I don't think it, yeah. out of 
the, you know, the first three, it's not my go-to, but yeah. it's it's not an unpleasant watch. Well, it is kind of an unpleasant yeah. watch, but in the right way. No, I get what you mean. A couple it of has, very tough acts to follow. Yeah, it has artistic vision, at least, mm. which is not something I would say about the Alien versus Predator movies. Yeah. and Alien anything that came afterwards, basically, yeah. And possibly Covenant. <laughs> Yeah, we shall see. Although I, one of the things I really like about um, Alien Three is the um, the it's not in here with you; it's in here with mm, me. Mm. It's it's in her. Yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, actually, there's a nice link there at the very end. This is this is Ellen uh, Ripley, last survivor of the Nostromo, signing off. Kurt Russell's character McCready leaves a recording of himself to account for the thing and explain what the hell happened, which is sort of a, like a, you could pick that up if they really were going to do a sequel. Um, but just the whole idea of, you know, well, well, maybe if we don't survive, and of course it's almost certain that he doesn't survive that, uh, that there is something left that he is able to. And this is, I was really, you know, impressed with what Rob Vega said here, um, that technically if he's informing the people who then have to deal with the thing later on, he is technically leaving behind a positive virus to counteract the negative parasite of the thing in that he is disseminating information about how to counter it. Mm. Um, but clearly this had an impact on me because there's the whole Vox tube situation at the end of uh, secret rooms, wherein they are leaving the account of what's happening to them in case they don't survive that. So that leaves you like totally like nail biting. Oh God, they really might not survive. So, yeah, if you haven't listened to Secret Rooms yet and you really, really like this kind of nail-biting tension, what are you doing? Go listen to Secret Rooms. Now available on Bandcamp. (laughs) Anything else on The Thing? I don't know if it is, but it's probably John Carpenter's best film. I I, I don't think there's a probably about that. I I, Because generally i'm not actually a huge fan of john carpenter's work mm-hmm. this is by far my favorite film of his and i think it stands head and shoulders uh, above what he was doing then and especially what he's been doing recently yeah go to mars i think that was when i checked out on what he was actually making was ghost of mars yeah. um uh, there is a certain like I love how clearly defined Halloween is and it sort of lays down the template for the slasher movie with what it does. But at the same time, because everything else apes it, it is just a slasher movie as well. Yeah. So it's a very well executed one, but um, it, it, it's just a slasher movie. Whereas well, the thing unlike, feels unlike a, everything else that tr- seems to... See, unlike Josh, I am like. a fan, so, this, so it depends on my mood, how I feel. I think yeah. from the technical point, this is probably the best film. But it's again, it's down to the mood I'm in to what I want to watch. You know, Because he's got stuff like Halloween, which I don't watch very often because, like you said... Because everything aped it, it just just feel like the stereotypical slasher. Then yeah. you got stuff like Assault on Pre- Precinct Thirteen. You've yeah. got The Fog, which I really enjoy. Escape from New York. I even enjoy Escape from LA, but that's because it is a very bad, good movie. Mm. I quite like In the Mouth of Madness. If we're going to talk I about like, Cthulhu, oh, that's yes, true. yeah, I do like In the Mouth of Madness. Mm. As well. There's a big uh, difference between this is fantastic and and I quite like though. And it does good comedies because Big Trouble in Little China is very funny. Yeah, um. But yeah, I'd, I'd actually thank you, Nick Grugin, because you kind of forced my hand on this. Well, you didn't force my hand. You encouraged me in this direction. And applying the 
gonzo treatment to this. I've really, you know, I found a lot more in the thing than I ever really gave it credit for. I think I was probably just comparing it to Alien and going and going. Oh, I just you know, there's because there is a lot in Alien, but I wasn't digging hard enough. Yeah, thanks, Nick, because you got him to do what I couldn't. Because <laughs> I suggested <laughs> doing some carpenter on the Halloween stuff. You did, and I resisted. But um, but well, no, they know the answer. Buy him a microphone. Yeah, buy me a microphone, <laughs> or become one of our high-level patrons for for one month, and then we will do whatever the hell you want us to do. You know. Oh, I, I look forward to this because I I'm seeing some glorious pain in your future. I look yeah. forward to it highly. The only thing is, I'm probably going to be there right with you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> See, like what, Neil will do it for free if he likes it and he's interested. He'll just totally do it. I have a thing for look. I, I can watch you know terrible movies and I can find enjoyment in most films, mm. except for a certain trilogy that you made me watch. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> well, oh, no, I paid you that's back. the other I'm thing. Curious. If we're gonna do it anyway, like you know, if 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 you say, oh, we, you, you know, could you do the Rocky films? We go, yeah, we could do. That. I, I, rem- I mentioned that during the Highlander episode. If you said, for example, could you do Twenty One Jump Street? We'd go. Actually, that's on our list. We're totally gonna do that. Ah. So save your money for later. Of course, pass. But uh, to us, two of the greatest comedies of our time. Um. So yeah, we'll we'll you know give you the we'll, we'll let you know if we like it, basically what you want to do is suggest something and be like, woof, really, okay, and like you know that's if you cool. think that there are hidden depths that we can get to, that's kind of really the best kind of film. <laughs> Note yourself, become high level patron and subscriber, and make him watch Hardware <laughs> just so you can finally go. What the <laughs> hell? I will watch hard Hardware for you. For like watching a film is fine. It's reviewing a film that takes a lot of. You know, we have to really engage brain for this. It's it's sweating. Not everyone can do what we do, and yeah, hopefully you enjoyed this uh, this first commissioned show. I suppose. Although actually, we did do for. Um, uh, 4D, we we did review Robocop back in the day, which also featured uh, Neil. Yeah, I, I crop up on a lot of 80s films. Can't think why. I have no idea. We've still yet to review The Shawshank Redemption. We promised him oh, we would. We've got to totally do that. God, it's so good. Most wonderful film of all time. How come we've reviewed Alien vs. Predator Resurrection, but not The Shawshank Redemption, Sharon? I don't know. You control the schedule, mate. It's you don't do that one. Because it could just be. The... I just I just turn up and talk about stuff. <laughs> We're way too sequel and remake um, and blockbuster oriented. Like our our summer schedule is all to do with what the hell's coming out this summer. And I thought by this year would have calmed the fuck down, but. No. But Alex, this no. is how this this works. I do the same over on the the YouTube side of things. You look what's coming out and go, "Oh, that's going to help me get views or listens." That's how we end up doing it. I, I'll get around to that 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 passion project in a bit. Oh yeah. no, no, I'm, we're not just doing everything. Like oh, um, I know that, but... Alice, Alice through the Looking Glass will probably get us uh, clicks, but I don't want to talk about it. Oh yes. no, we all have a line somewhere. Yeah, uh, and when we although we are invested in the uh, source material. Um, I've seen Alice in Wonderland, twenty ten. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's another thing. The thing twenty eleven, as I said before, should have been called something else. When you're doing a remake, don't just call it the thing, the thing. You know, just like give it something to signify. You've got to yeah, Ghostbusters. And in the space of time it took me to edit this show, three more people asked me to review Voltron. So what we're going to do uh, week to week is Voltron Watch, where I account for the amount of people who are asking us to review Voltron. 
And that way you guys can all get together, club together, get a pot together, because the more you badger us to do Voltron, the less I want to do it! Have you got a price for Voltron? Have we got a price for Voltron? Yeah. Okay. Um, see, I was saying we could negotiate it, but I think I probably need to put a dollar figure on it now for Voltron. Um, well, okay, a, a two-hour movie is $150. Yeah. But you see, it's not just to watch the four hours that Voltron constitutes. No, no, it's no, ten episodes, because we then got to go back and look the, at the original well, yeah, Voltron. Yeah, I mean, so. $150 wasn't mm. for just watching the movie. That yeah. was factoring in the hours of... Preparation and recording and editing as well. I don't know. It sounds so mercenary. I don't want to sound mercenary. I sure as hell don't want to sound greedy. But I do want to convey the amount of work that goes into this. What I will say, though, is that we're not going to lower the quality for this one. We're not going to do a half-assed show where we kind of sort of talk about something where our heart's not really in it. I won't put out that kind of show. We always want to give you the best. That's something to be respected. That's something to be prized. So let's call Voltron 250. 25 of you want to club together, put in 10 bucks each, we'll do it. We'll put in the effort. In the meantime, coming up for the next two weeks, movies we actually really want to review. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Star Trek 12 Into Darkness. And then the 2016 Ghostbusters. <laughs> yeah, can I just say, I just saw a tweet and I my heart just broke. Mm -hmm. Ryan Ashley just tweeted apparently what is the new theme song it's by fallout boy oh no that, it's it's the ghost is it 2004 oh it gets better featuring missy elliott okay. what what decade are we in uh <laughs> 2004 <laughs> okay. Oh, oh, okay oh it's horrible yeah okay. looking forward to reviewing that film I, we we all hope it's good for just it's, so much. I'm relishing this. It's, it's just a little badly advertised. It's still good. It's still good. <laughs> it's gone. Um, I know. On that bombshell, thank you very much to Josh and Neil for joining us on The Thing 1982. Very thank welcome. you for having us. <laughs> okay, so I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's out. School's out.
Now, Clark. And Clark was human, huh? Which makes you a murderer, don't it? Palmer now. This is pure nonsense. Doesn't prove a thing. I thought you'd feel that way, Gary. You were the only one that could have got to that blood. We'll do you last. Please. 